Good morning again. Uh, if you would turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 will be our text this morning. Back a long, long time ago, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, well, not that long ago, but it was a long time ago, uh, I went to a friend's birthday party, um, and at this friend's birthday party, I met a girl. And after the party, my friend came up to me at school and he said, hey, this girl likes you. I'm like, awesome. Okay, when you're 14, that's really exciting, right? And so uh, he said that I needed to go to this youth group event coming up this next week so that I could run into her again. Okay, and so I did. I went to the youth group event. We talked for just a little bit, but we were 14, so we were really shy, so we didn't talk a whole lot. And about a week later, my friend gave me a letter written to me by this girl. Okay, and I know that this might date me, um, but again, this was a long time ago, and this is back when if you wanted to communicate with somebody, you wrote them a letter. Okay, we didn't have email, uh, we didn't have cell phone numbers we could exchange, there's no way I could text her. And by the way, if you're a young person today, you will never know the fear of calling a girl's house and having the possibility that her father would answer the phone. Okay? That feeling in your stomach that you might have to say, can I talk to your daughter, please? Okay, it's terrible. Anyway, so I got this letter from this girl, and I was very excited about it. Now, when I got this letter, what do you think I did? Do you think that I read the first few lines and then stopped and took a break? Do you think that I read the first paragraph and then said, okay, I'm going to take some time, parse every word of what she said, make sure I get all of the nuances just right, and then next week I'll come back and read the next section of the letter. Is that what I did? Do you think it took me several days of reading it a section at a time to get through the letter? Or did I tear through that letter in one sitting really quickly just to see if she liked me? Okay, Which, by the way, she didn't, but that's okay. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. I did better, so it's going to be okay. Thank you. All right, I want you to keep in mind that when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he did not intend for us to take six months to read it. Okay, he didn't intend for us to take six weeks to read it. He didn't write it so that we could go through it one single paragraph at a time and say, okay, now what does this mean? And then let's think about it for several weeks and then come back and think about the next section. I'm afraid what happens sometimes when we get together in church and do a sermon series like what we're doing here this morning, we lose the forest for the trees. Okay, we miss the big picture of what Paul is doing. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he intended for the church to sit down and read it and get the argument that he's making. Okay? So even though we're going to do what I'm warning against and take this one line at a time, I don't want us to lose sight of the bigger picture of what Paul is doing. Fair enough? All right, so here is the argument so far. Here's the review of what we've covered up to this point, the first couple and a half chapters. Okay, and the first thing is this, is that apart from God, things get ugly really quickly. All right, remember all of the idolatry and the rape and the murder and the power struggles in chapter 1. Paul says you look at the world around you, you look at how people live without God, and it gets ugly fast. Okay, now, my challenge to us is turn on the news, look at the world around us today, and ask yourself, are people any better today than they were back in the first century? Or are we pretty much the same as people have always been? And that when we live outside of God's plan, it never works, and it always gets brutal really quickly. 
Okay, people haven't changed. If we don't live God's way, it turns into chaos. Okay, number one. All right, number two. The Jews, because of their covenant relationship with God, were supposed to be the means by which humanity could be redeemed. Okay, God chose our father Abraham out of all the people on earth, created a covenant with him, made promises through Abraham that through him all the world would be blessed. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, the means by which all of us could be saved. Number three. The problem, though, is that now the rescue plan needs rescuing. When Paul writes Romans, the Jews are scattered all over the world. In 1,500 years of being God's people, they have been faithful for a grand total of about 20 minutes. Right? They've never been good at being faithful to God. Nobody looks at them as the moral guide or as the way to know God. Israel had the covenant. They had every advantage. They had the instruction from God himself, and they failed. Number four, does this mean that God is unrighteous? Because it sure looks that way. The Jews are a mess. The world is still fallen. What in the world is God possibly going to do to fix this? Okay, that's where we ended last time. Things didn't look too good. All right, verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right, you could spend the rest of your life just unpacking what Paul says in those three verses. Okay, but here's what I contend is the main point. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're only going to get one thing out of today, get this one point. And that is that God has been righteous. If ever a statement I've ever made from this pulpit deserves an amen, it's that one. Okay, God has been righteous. There is a big break between verse 20 and verse 21. That phrase, but now, is huge. Okay, the Gentiles failed because they should have known God, but they didn't care. The Jews failed because they did know God. They were supposed to be the rescue operation. They couldn't even maintain their own faith. It looked like all hope was lost. We have no idea what's going to happen next. But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Okay, and something that we have to understand for this to make sense is that righteousness is a legal term. And that Paul in Romans is using a lot of forensic imagery to get us to understand what's going on. All right, if you want to understand this part of Romans, understand Paul is laying out for us a courtroom scene. Okay, and in this courtroom, humanity has been questioning the righteousness of God. Okay, should God be declared guilty because he hasn't rescued the world like he was supposed to? Okay, we're also questioning whether or not we could be found righteous. Okay, if God hasn't been able to make us righteous, then we're guilty too. Okay, righteousness is when a judge looks at all of the evidence and then rules in your favor. 
Okay, we've made righteousness into this big Bible word, but in Paul's day, everybody would have known what righteous means. Righteous means when the judge looks at you and rules in your favor. Okay, to be righteous means having a judge rule in your favor. Right, this doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It means you were right. Okay, that's righteous. And the law and the prophets testified to this righteousness of God. Right Now, the law and the prophets that Paul's talking about in verse 21, that's what we call our Old Testament, right? Okay, the Bible said that God was going to save the world, and now in spite of all the obstacles, in spite of all the unfaithfulness on our part, on the part of God's people, God has done it. So, in this trial imagery that Paul lays out before us, we accused God of not being faithful. After all, just look at the world. How faithful does it seem God has been? The world is a mess. But now we know that, in fact, God was righteous. He was right because he did what he promised he would do. Okay, we've now come full circle. Does that all make sense? Does that all work? All right. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right, this, this verse is a little tricky. This entire paragraph is a little bit tricky. Uh, I hope you do bear with me as we do kind of parse it line by line. Uh, but this is important. I hope you track with me for a second as we go through this. Okay, this is one of the very few places in Scripture... Uh, that I think the translators just flat out got it wrong. Okay? And in fact, the majority of scholars now agree that verse 22 should be translated differently. In fact, if you've got a more modern translation, you probably have a footnote at the end of verse 22 telling you that there's an alternative way to translate this. Okay, now, most of the time, when scholars disagree about the particular wording or phrase in Scripture, it doesn't do anything to change the meaning. Right? There's a famous one in Acts where there's about 50% of scholars think one way, about 50% of scholars think the other way. And in the passage in question in Acts, the question is, did God save us or did Jesus save us? Okay, and there's two ways you could translate it, but at the end of the day, does it really matter at that particular point whether it says God saves us or Jesus saves us? Because the meaning doesn't change, right? Either God saved us through himself or God saved us through Jesus, but Scripture holds both of those things to be true, right? So those alternative translations don't really change anything, and yet in Romans chapter 3, it matters tremendously. Here's how I would translate verse 22. This righteousness is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who have faith. Okay, that's the David Chisholm version. Okay. You can't go pick that one up at Lifeway, by the way. Okay. That's just for you. Okay, but do you see the difference here? Do you see how radically different that first phrase is versus the second one? Okay, that first one makes this all about me. It makes it all about how much I believe in Jesus. The second one, the one I think makes a whole lot more sense, makes it all about Jesus and how faithful he was. 
Okay, you remember how last week I said one of the big pitfalls that we can get into in studying Romans is that we make it all about me and my story. And we say, okay, I'm living my life. I'm living my story. Now, how does God fit into my life? And we're reading it backwards. Okay, the only way scripture, the only way Romans really makes sense is if we say, okay, God has his story, the story of salvation that God is telling, and how do I fit into God's story? I think verse 22 isn't primarily about my faith. It is about Jesus' faithfulness. In terms of fitting verse 22 into Paul's bigger argument, the second translation is the only one that makes sense. Okay, now, there will be a time for us to have faith. We have a response of faith, but our faith comes secondary to Jesus' faithfulness always. It's about what God does first, and then it's about my response to that. All right, so here's where we're at. Here's the argument Paul makes. And Paul is a very detailed guy. Paul is a very careful guy. Okay, here's what he says. He says, God is righteous. Okay, he's righteous in his actions. And yet his chosen vessel, Israel, was unfaithful. So we needed someone who would be faithful. Okay, well, who was it? It was Jesus. Jesus was faithful in the place of Israel who couldn't be faithful. Okay, Jesus kept the law. He was the Jew in the line of David. He maintained his faith. Okay, so righteousness or a non-guilty verdict comes because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Okay, it's not about me. It's about Jesus being faithful when we desperately needed somebody to be faithful. You know, last week I ended the sermon with something of a cliffhanger. Uh, we talked about how messed up the world was, how the Gentiles couldn't keep faith, how the Jews couldn't keep faith, and I ended last week's sermon with a question. Okay, the sermon ended last week with a question, how in the world is God going to fix all this? How in the world is God going to put the world right? Okay, after the sermon, I had two different people come up to me and say, well, preacher, we're not going to be here next week. How does this thing work out? I said, well, I hate to ruin the ending for you, but it's Jesus. Okay. All right, let me ask a question for you. Uh, how many of you, when you got up this morning, turned on a light? Most of you didn't turn on a light. Okay. How many of you are awake right now? Let's ask that question instead. How many of you need a light right now? Okay, uh, most of us at some point today did something pretty simple. We walked over to the wall or to a lamp and we flipped a switch and light filled the room, right? We're familiar with that process, right? Okay, how many of you were amazed when it happened? How many of you just said, that's incredible. I just pushed one little button or flipped one little switch and suddenly we had light, Okay. You weren't amazed by it at all. Why? Because you've done it hundreds and hundreds of times before. You grew up with electricity, and you take it completely for granted. I want you to imagine the first people that ever did that, though. Okay? When Edison and Tesla and all those guys finally figured out how to make electricity work, and they invited people over to parties, and they blew out all the candles, and they said, okay, watch this. And they flipped a switch, and the room immediately filled with light. Okay? When they first did it, everyone said, magic. Okay? Why? They'd never seen it before. And even after it was explained to them, they said, that's the most amazing thing we have ever seen. 
All right, but now we are not amazed by that at all because we take it for granted because we've always had it. All right, when Paul first explains to Christians or to people who would become Christians about the salvation that God has made available through Jesus Christ, his son, they would have all said, that's amazing. Okay, we read this paragraph and we think, yeah, Jesus. Why? Okay, we've had it all our lives. So many of us take it for granted. And yet if we really would take just a minute and think about how truly wonderful and amazing and miraculous this is, uh, it would make us different people. Fair enough? It's all about Jesus. All right, verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, I want you to notice how time and time again throughout this entire section, it's not about our righteousness, who's declared to be righteous over and over and over again. It's God. The righteousness of God has been revealed. God was the one in the right. But now, because of Jesus, there is redemption available to you and I. Okay, and that's number two, if you're taking notes this morning. And that's that God was righteous in sending Jesus to bring redemption. Jesus brought redemption. Redemption literally means that you were once a slave, but now you have been redeemed or bought out of slavery. The entire idea of redemption is that you once were enslaved to sin, but now you have been bought, now you are free. The other day, I wasn't present for this conversation, but I had it repeated to me, and I thought it was hilarious. Okay, Rachel was talking to Sam, and she was talking about, uh, she saw cows in the field or something, and was talking to him about the cows and the farm that he saw, and he was very excited about that. And she looked at Sam, and she goes, Sam, where does milk come from? And Sam looked at his mother like she was crazy. His mom, milk comes from the refrigerator. Okay, in his world, where does milk come from? The refrigerator, okay? He's right, but there's more to it than that, right? Okay, where does our salvation come from? Jesus. True, but there's a whole lot more to it than that, okay? We need a bigger vision to truly understand how Jesus is our salvation, okay? And that's part of what Paul is giving us here, especially in verse 25, Okay, and verse 25 is one of the most fascinating verses in all of Scripture, and yet we miss almost all of it because in English it just doesn't come through like it would have to Paul's first readers. Okay, in this one verse, Paul makes three different comparisons about how Jesus fulfills what went on in Judaism, okay, and we miss almost all of it. Okay, but here's the first one. Okay, he says, in the first place, Jesus is the showbread. Okay? Jesus is the showbread. All right, starting back in the tabernacle period and then later when they built the temple, uh, every Sabbath the Israelites baked 12 loaves of unleavened bread and they put them on a special table in the holy place in the presence of God. Okay, this is also called the bread of the presence. 
Okay, and these loaves were symbolic of the unity of the tribes, right? There's 12 tribes of Israel, 12 loaves of bread. They're all right there before God. They reminded people of the unleavened bread that they ate when they celebrated their redemption leaving Egypt, right? Remember the Exodus? You saw the movie at least, right? Okay, the Israelites leave Egypt. They ate the unleavened bread. Okay, they reminded the people that every bite that you eat and every provision you possess is a gift from God Almighty. So every week on Saturday, the priests would eat the old bread and they would put out 12 new loaves of bread. And anything that they didn't eat, they had to burn um, on the bronze altar. Okay, this is the show bread. Literally in Hebrew, it's called the bread of the presence. It reminds us of unity, liberation, provision, and God being with us. In Romans 3.25, that word presented is a special word that would have let the readers know that Jesus is fulfilling all of those roles of the bread of the presence. Okay, Jesus is the showbread. Right, in the second place, Paul tells us that Jesus is the mercy seat. Okay, again, in the tabernacle, later on in the temple, you have the holy of holies, right? That's the inner room that only the high priest can go in, and he only goes in once a year. And in that inner room is the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there's a golden lid, and on top of that, there's two cherubim, okay, which look like angels, and they have wings pointed into the center. And that spot between the cherubim is known as the mercy seat, all right. Our God doesn't dwell in an idol like other religions, right, in the Jews' day. Okay? You can go to other places in the world and they would say, oh, our God lives in this temple and he's inside that statue over there. All right? Our God of Israel doesn't do that. Our God doesn't dwell in a statue. Our God dwells in the empty space. This is hugely significant theologically. Our God doesn't dwell in a box. Okay, because that would indicate that we can contain him, and our God cannot be contained. Our God exists in the empty space, and he has come down to us to be on that mercy seat in that empty space, and that is where the presence of God dwelt among his children of Israel. Okay, and on the Day of Atonement, what the high priest would do is he would take the blood of the, the covenant... Okay, and sprinkle it on that mercy seat. And God said that's how we would be forgiven for our sins. Okay, the NIV says that Christ was a sacrifice of atonement. Okay, we heard the King James earlier, and it says an archaic word, propitiation. Okay, all of those are translating one word in Greek that Jews would have heard as mercy seat. Again, you probably have a footnote in your Bible telling you another way you can say that is to say mercy seat. Okay, Jesus is presented like showbread and he's the mercy seat. He is the place where God meets with his people and grants us mercy for our sins through the shedding of blood. Okay, which leads us to the third image in verse 25. That Paul says that Jesus not only is that mercy seat, but he himself is the blood offering. As we already said, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest took the blood of the Lamb, sprinkled it on the mercy seat. In Romans 3, Paul claims that Jesus is not only that mercy seat, but he is that blood. Jesus liberated us from all the chaos, all of the ugliness that we read about at the beginning of Romans, and he does it through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
Verse 27. Where then is boasting? Okay, well, if you understand all that we just read about, how Jesus did all this for us, where is boasting? What are you going to brag about? What did you do? Where is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? Okay, I don't care how well you kept the law. You didn't sacrifice your life for the sins of the world. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. All right, here's where we're going next week. I'll give you the preview for it right now. But it's number three. We live by faith. Okay. All of this is proceeding directly into chapter four, which we'll talk about in two weeks. Uh, next week is Father's Day, so we'll get something a little different. But we'll come back to this in two Sundays. Uh, Talking about what does it look like then, after we realize what God has done for us, what does it look like for us to respond in faith? Okay, and one thing I want to note, and again, we'll get into detail on this better, but the emphasis on this is not on how you feel, okay? It's not about having some inner feeling that makes you feel close to God. This is about your new status, Okay, Paul claims that because of Jesus, because of the work that God has done, because of the faithfulness and the righteousness of Jesus, we have a new status. Now we too get to be declared righteous. We get to be declared free from our sins. We get to be declared by the judge to be right. And there's a lot of blessings that come with that. Again, we'll get into that as we carry on.